Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and today's interview is with Buck Cooper. Buck is a middle school math teacher at St. Andrews in Jackson, Mississippi. And today we talk about the behind the scenes stagecraft of teaching, how leading a class discussion is like playing Tetris, seeing kids as the best version of themselves, The Wire season four, and our love of whiteboards. And at one point in the conversation, Buck said something that really, when I was re-listening to it as I was editing, made me sit up. He said, children are being sorted into their places in the economy by the schools they are able to attend. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Also, at certain points, Buck has a dog in the other room. You'll hear a little bit of barking. Enjoy. Mr. Cooper, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you graduated high school in what year? 1995. So the first question I'll always ask is 1995, senior year, what music was Buck Cooper listening to? Uh, I was a bench warmer for the varsity basketball team at my high school alma mater. And we came out more often than not to Aini Kamozi's Here Comes the Hot Stepper. And we had a fight over... Um, thuggish ruggish bone because half the team was like no no no, that's too slow and half the team was like no that's perfect so bone thugs and harmony Aini Kamozi and then there was an ice cube song and all I can remember I think it was um all I can remember is Tadao was the uh sort of like the refrain but the the song the name of the song had nothing to do with that so I was listening to a lot of mid '90s rap music that was that's like the height of rap music, as far as I'm concerned. So, love it. I also love the idea that, like songs and song titles, sometimes there's a complete disconnect. Like anybody that knows me well knows that I love the song "Dilemma" by Nelly and Kelly Rowland. But if right. you listen to that song, like if you just listen to the song without knowing the title and then tried to brainstorm the title you would get to like brainstorm idea 900 million before you hit dilemma. Is the word even in the song? No. It's a, I'm crazy over you even when I'm with yeah. my boo. Is that, yeah. yeah no, it should I'm be, not... I'm crazy over you. Crazy right. over you or something like that would be the perfect, perfect title. Uh, okay. So you're now teaching at your alma mater. And the question I want to start with is, how is teaching different from how you thought teaching would be? So the only part of teaching that you see when you're a student is basically like seeing the game when you follow a sports team or seeing the stage production or the final cut of, of some you know piece of theater or a movie. So what you don't see is everything that goes on behind the scenes to make that very public thing happen. And like you, I knew it existed, like teachers would always, you know, pass back graded papers. So you knew they got graded and you knew that, that they put in work to, to think about how they were gonna teach you what they were teaching you. But um, no, one, no one tells you that like, the amount of thinking and, you know, both for better and for worse, the amount of thinking that you can put into your teaching and the amount of planning that you can do for your teaching is, you know, it's as many hours as you've got to be awake in the day if you can do it, if you want to do it that way. And the 
the sort of flip side of all that work is like with a lot of different pursuits, the easier it looks, the more work happened behind the scenes. 100%. Yeah, I'm working this year on trying to get better at orchestrating discussions in a math class. And so there's research around this and there's a framework and I'm, I'm reading a book about that framework. It's the book's called Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Mathematical Discussions. And the framework is like plan what you wanna teach and then plan the problems that you're gonna to use to teach it, but then anticipate the answers you're gonna get, work out how you're gonna to respond to those things that you can anticipate. And then in the moment, record as your students are working through the problem, the ways that you see that they're going wrong that look like they might be productive and the ways that students are answering and that maybe you didn't anticipate. Then in the moment, put those in some kind of meaningful order have the students present those in that meaningful order and then try to bring the whole thing together. Well, you know, some of that is great in the moment stuff, but some of it is, yeah, you've got to actually be able to think about a single really good math problem in a multitude of ways. And it's going to look easy in the moment because you're going to know exactly the, the way you want to proceed with the conversation. And ideally the conversation feels seamless to the students, but it also feels like it's giving them some greater understanding of math. But there you are, like you've done all this work and decision-making that they never have access to, except through the finished product. It's like Tetris on steroids. 100%, yeah. Like, like are you gonna get it? Are you gonna get it? Are you gonna get a box? Are you gonna get the L-shaped one? Like, which which response are you gonna get that then dictates how we build this structure? Going absolutely. Forward? And you know, you fail in that situation. You know, it's not just like you get to start over. Like, you've got to work back on helping somebody understand something where you already helped screw up their understanding of it. So mm -hmm. there's some stakes there, and. I think especially with math learning, uh, a lot of children have had trauma around math learning. A lot of parents have passed on their trauma around math learning. And, um, you know, people, especially, I think in by eighth grade, a lot of people have made their decisions about whether or not math is something that they really want to pursue in any meaningful way. And so you're also trying to, um, you're trying to sell math and selling math is very different than selling science because there's not all these cool labs you can do in math and not all this uh, equipment you can do, but you, you gotta, you're trying to sell something to people who aren't buying uh, and you're trying to sell something on its intrinsic value, not necessarily on the bells and whistles you can attach to it. And that's a hard sell. Mm. I heard teaching described once as you're selling a product to a customer that absolutely does not want to purchase this product, but is legally required by the state to do so. <laughs> this is true. So back to the idea of how actually teaching differed from what you thought about teaching. What, what are the keys to having an engaging, productive classroom 
uh, I think the number one key, uh, there, there are a lot of them. Um, for me, the one that lines up most with the thing that brings me joy is you better be a person who is ready to meet, fall in love with, and lose a group of children nine months every year. Um, and if you can do that, um, if you can find yourself, like, if you can find yourself, I think essentially loving your students for that time that you're together, if you can find something in each and every one of them that is a way for you to see them as more fully human, then all of the other things fall into place because you then know when to respond in what way to how a child responds to what you're teaching. And that, that's hard, right? Like, to not, I don't want to belabor sports metaphors, but the longer you do something, the more the game slows down, the more clearly you can see it. And I can vividly describe to you, like the first days of my first years of teaching were all whirlwinds. And I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't. But the, the, the real takeaway is, I was fully in the moment, but I couldn't see the moment because there was just so much going on and so much that to think about. I think the longer you're in, the longer you do the work, the more, the more you can start to see people for who they are, or at least the best version of them that you need to try to attach to. Um, the more you can see that, the faster you can see it, uh, and the more you can um, use that to do the work and um, also just use that to be satisfied by the work. Because if you don't like children, why, why would you spend, you know, why would you spend a third of your life for months of the year with children? I mean, the only absolute is, for me, right, is I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to treat people's children as humans, right? Like that's the absolute. Everything else is I'm learning about you. I'm, I'm responding to you. You're responding to me. All that requires thought and patience and, and, and concern and um, knowledge and wisdom born of experience. I, I do want my students to respect one another. And I do want my students in the, in the best of all possible worlds to not always talk through me or to me, but to sometimes respond to one another. And that, that's hard to get in middle school. Um, but, uh, but so how yeah, do you do classroom, that? You know, I don't, that's, why, that's why my focus this year is on pro conducting productive mathematical discussions. Um, they don't see it. I don't think, I mean, you know, most classes have this teacher initiated question, student response, teacher evaluation. And it's an easy model for how to conduct talk in any kind of class. And, um, you know, you, you could ask any child who's been in school for any meaningful period of time to go stand in front of the class and act like a teacher and they would start asking questions and people mm -hmm. would raise their hands without being asked. And the teacher would say, yes or no, you're right or you're wrong. And they haven't even been trained as teachers, but they've been trained as teachers. Um, so I, I've tried doing sort of roundtable discussions. Maybe sometimes it works, but you know the models of what school looks like that kids get by the time they get to me, they're eight years in. 
you try beating something that somebody's been doing for eight years, you're not going to win much of the time. You do what you can, but that's hard. That's hard. I mean, you get to college. It's the same thing. Try having a discussion in college with college students. They all want to raise their hands and know if they're right. I think a lot about what institutions do to what people have or bring with them. And so I have, I've had a wide variety of teaching experiences. I've done six years in a three different public schools. I've done seven years in two different independent schools. And then I've done some college teaching as well. And I think that schools are instruments that people either choose to um, attach themselves to and attempt to gain from. So uh, for example, right? Like uh, teaching in Alexandria, Virginia, I was teaching in a program called the International Academy at what was called TC Williams High School, which is now Alexandria City High School. Almost all of my students were um, recent immigrants to the United States, most of them from the northern cone of what our former president called shithole countries. Um, they were in school because it was an instrument to get a piece of paper that was going to make it likely that they're going to be able to earn a higher wage so that they could send money back to their country. I had students, we had students who were seniors who were already building houses back in their countries. They were sending money home to build houses for themselves. That's very different from the school that I currently teach at now where families are paying uh, tuition to um, set their children up both in terms of educational opportunities, travel opportunities, but also, you know, networking opportunities and at least the possibility of selective college admissions. Um, and the, the teaching in both those environments is very different and the learning in both those environments is very different. And the same would be true in Vicksburg as well. Um, Vicksburg is very much a community about its schools making people employable. And so there's a lot of pressure, even from the elementary school ages, to start thinking about your career choices. Those aren't pressures that I faced as a student when I was at a private school. I was encouraged to defer. You know, school was my job. You didn't want to work at Cindy's Catfish House on the weekends because you want a little extra spending cash. Your job was to, to do well in European history. And same with the college I went to. So teaching and learning are instruments. And this is, you know, this is the, the thing I, I didn't get coming into it. And it's another thing you have to sort of learn to accept that people, people are coming to schools with different wants and expectations and schools are providing them with different tools. You know, I spent time in grad school thinking about this and the sort of very cynical, but I think somewhat true view is Schools, right, which are not the only places where teaching and learning happen, but schools are sorting mechanisms and children are being systematically sorted into their places in the economy. We can talk about whether that's absolute. It's not. Nothing is right. Every statement is probabilistic, but children are being very likely sorted into their places in the economy by the schools that they're able to attend um, or the schools that their families work to allow them to attend. Mm. It sounds like 
what you're saying is a lot of what teaching is and a lot of what the expectations of learning are is content i mean context dependent and we're all part of systems we're all moving through systems we're all being impacted by systems and that that more than anything else determines how teaching and teaching and learning works at a particular school in a particular um, town or city i think that's not far from true i don't want to underplay the agency that people have demonstrated across history especially in this country but even now in afghanistan right like there's an interview two mornings ago my sons and i were listening to with a woman who was um is living in afghanistan is concerned about what's going to happen now that the taliban has retaken control of the country and she is literally working with other women to use online resources to set up underground schools should the taliban decide that girls aren't going to be girls and women aren't going to be allowed to get educations anymore and um other situations right like in the deep south in the united states during segregation right educational opportunities for uh, black people were limited on account of the law and yet we have you know great evidence of black communities coming together and making schools work for their children despite everything that the state was trying to do to uh, to diminish their opportunities and to keep them keep their keep I don't know, white people's, the state's collective feet on their necks. So yeah, I think it's context specific. I think systems are certainly um, a condition of it, but I think also people have demonstrated the capacity to have agency in those situations. So mm. I don't think that it's completely a lost or something to be always pessimistic about. Can you think about, because um, you've been in education for, for two decades now, two decades plus, uh, a note, a comment, uh, a message, a voicemail you got from a former student that meant a lot to you? When I was in Vicksburg, periodically I would use my phone as a, uh, as a timer in the classroom. And so I'd put the timer down and walk off and I, uh, I went flipping through my pictures and one of my students had recorded a short message. And so there it is, the ceiling of the classroom and then her face comes into the picture and she says, Mr. Cooper, when you see this, I just want you to know you're the best teacher ever, click. And it was one of those situations where I had no idea what, what, what had happened or anything like that, but you flip through your pictures and then what, what's going to happen in this? So it's just, and then, no, there it is. It's Armani Gleese um, saying how much she appreciates me. And that, that means a lot. We all, if, if you ask the question, who is your favorite teacher? Everybody can think of a person immediately. When you think of some of your favorite teachers, now being a teacher, has your assessment of them as a teacher changed either for the better or for the worse? It certainly is more nuanced. Um, but it's just because you realize, right? Like as a child, you, um, you're not fully formed in your opinions about things. So when you listen to one of your teachers talk about politics and 
they're sort of vaguely a Nixon apologist and clearly on board with the Reagan revolution. You're like, okay, this is not an unreasonable person, but they're also your favorite teacher. Um, you realize in retrospect, you know, okay, the politics I really wasn't on board with, but somehow I've got to make sense and the teaching was there and the, the person was there and obviously cared about me. Um, the thing is like what the teaching that worked for me was the teaching that would work for any student who was bought into the whole endeavor. So yes, I'm fine sitting there taking notes for two hours and answering questions and, and that's not going to work for children who aren't totally bought in. Um, and the teaching that is, I think, regarded as the best teaching, the teaching that has students actively doing work in the class. Like I've seen it done well, I've seen it done poorly, I've done it well, I've done it poorly. That would not have appealed to me and it didn't appeal to me when teachers tried it when I was a, um, when I was a grade school student. I, I honestly, I, I wanted the model that someone wise was telling me something and I sure as heck needed to, you know, make sense of it and get it in my brain. Um, I don't know. So, I, I missed so, out. So speaking of students who aren't fully bought into the system, is The Wire season four the most accurate representation of teaching ever put to screen? The teaching parts are whatever. Like the most accurate representation of teaching in that is when Prez is sitting on the couch watching a football game and his wife comes in and she asks him who's winning. And he says to her, nobody wins. One team just loses more slowly than the other. Like that Sunday afternoon on the couch watching a football game because it is the only thing that will get your mind off the shit show you're going to walk into on Monday uh, is 100% accurate. If the only way they could have made it more accurate is if they showed Prez the next morning waking up, pouring himself a cup of coffee and sitting on the couch and crying his eyes out. Mm. but the the whole you know the probability let, let's practice our probabilities with dice well, come on it's all good though you got to forgive something i mean david simon is undefeated mm -hmm. what what are three invaluable tools apps what have you that you use for teaching um spreadsheets and i think children should use spreadsheets too i think they're a great way to organize things i think children should learn how simply they can do really powerful things for sure so um the whole google suite has been i think fantastic in terms of making it possible to do efficient work provide efficient feedback to students um vertical non-permanent surfaces so marker boards, they lower the stakes on everything in a math class because if you're doing it on pencil and paper, you're doing it in chalk and you screw up, it's a real pain to, to fix it. But you make a little bit of a mistake on a, mark, on a marker board, on a whiteboard, you're good, you're good. And um, yeah, I don't know about apps. Um, I, I was, I was, I, I do like um, the 
the scaled down versions of computer programming that are sort of ubiquitous to children now. So I like the Lego um, EV3 programming platform for the Lego robots because it's block based. So children, and there's another one developed at MIT's media lab called Scratch. They're block based programming environments where children can grab a command, pull it down, connect it kind of like Legos electronically to another command string a bunch of those together, change a few things, click on them, and something happens. So they don't have to know or memorize or refer to a bunch of commands. They don't have to do a lot of typing, but they can do really powerful things in terms of learning how to sequence ideas, how to have agency in, like a, in, a, in, a, in an artistic environment, how to make games. I also, I also like how in particular with Scratch, how easy it is to, to share and to see how other people do things. We spend a lot of time telling kids, you know, do your own work, um, make sure the work is wholly yours. And that just sells short the whole idea that like you learn by seeing how other people did, right? I mean, we tell writers that all the time, the way to learn to write well is to read that's how you see how other people did. And it's the mm -hmm. same with Scratch. You know, you want to see how people made that thing move that way or made that screen change that way, then you can get under the hood and see it. And that's invaluable. And it shouldn't just be me the one doing it either, right? It shouldn't be the teacher that's always the person you're seeing do things. Your classmates have things to offer you. Other people have things to offer you. The, the social construction component to learning. Yeah, which in an individualistic society gets short shrift when you allow you're graded on your work, your outcomes are wholly a factor of you and your achievement is yours, which yes, own it, be proud of the work you've done, but man, acknowledge that it's not your own bootstraps all the time. Mm, 100%. It's funny. I you said another, a friend of mine who's, who's a teacher, we used to talk back and forth about various things. We were talking about what is our ideal classroom? And I said, just give me four walls that are wall to ceiling whiteboard. Mm -hmm. That's all I just want as much whiteboard space as possible. So they just renovated all the classrooms in the middle school where I am now and the way that they renovate them. I have one wall that has windows and three walls that are whiteboards. And yeah, I've died and gone to heaven because if I think of something and I, I mean, I always have a marker in my pocket. If I think of something I need to remember, there it is. If I'm talking to a student and we need to talk about something, there it is. Like, it's glorious. It is. You are 100 percent right. How many different color markers do you have? I only like to have the students work in one, so they work in uh, anything other than black, and I work in black. Mm. Nice. I mean, I have others, but yeah. All right, sir. That's all I got for you. Well, I enjoyed it. That's good stuff. As always, thank you. Yeah, thank you. This has been Ben Guest. You can find all of my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. Have a great day.